Welcome to the fifth episode of Behind the Scenes at Blenheim Palace. This week, I'm chatting to our archivist, Alexa Frost. People seem to be fascinated by the thought of an archive, what treasures they might come across and what scandals. Well, Alexa's here to talk about some of her favourite Blenheim treasures, how she cares for them, and also some of the fascinating things she's come across in the course of her work. Alexa is one of my colleagues and she is the archivist at Blenheim Palace. Alexa, welcome. Thank Good you for having me. Pleasure. Um, and the first thing I'd like to ask you um, really is to, to learn a little bit more about you. How, how long have you actually been working as the archivist at Blenheim Palace? So I've been working in the archives since 2014. I started working doing freelance project relating to cataloguing and getting it into an electronic database um, and then a year later I started working permanently um, in, in the archives and it grew from there. Oh, lovely and is it something you've always had had um, an interest in doing and when you were a little girl did you you know when people said what do you want to be when you grow up did you say I'd like to be an archivist at Blenheim Palace? Uh, no uh, in words. However, I did do a survey at school, at secondary school, and it came out with that I should be a librarian. So maybe <laughs> there was a bit of that. Uh, I come from an academic background, so um, my experience of archives, to be honest, was from a researcher's point of view. So to get mm -hmm. to the opportunity of being the um, custodian of the papers and enabling researchers, we're seeing things from a completely different side and, and very exciting from that point of view. And Alexa, you've seen um, you've seen a few changes, I think, since you started. Um, yeah. I mean, where are you sitting at the moment? Virtually. So I, I, I'm virtually sitting in the new archives. Um, we moved here in 2017. Um, powers of modern technology mean that I can uh, work from home in the archives, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you started, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about um, the history of the archives at Blenheim. So what what was the first kind of, you know, are you the first archivist? Has there been someone there for 300 years? What What's, what's right. been going on? The predecessor was a retired education manager and he volunteered and helped set things up and, and get them running. And I worked closely with him to move things forwards. And prior to that, there hadn't been an enormous amount of formal activity going on. Um, for those of you that have visited the palace and, and are aware of it, there have been moves over over time. Most recently, there was a move from what is now the Orangery area and the campaign rooms where people can have uh, lectures and conferences they moved from there into the palace and then now to a different part of the palace taking a step back before then the eighth duke appointed a gentleman called stuart johnson reed now who... i i have a, a a slide here alexa which um, is relevant to that point yeah so um stuart reed was the son of a reverend from newcastle and he was known for being a reviewer and writer and publisher and we're not entirely clear how he became closely connected to the eighth duke and, and began working for him um but in 1896 to 1900 he had helped the 8th Duke create a historical library to replace the Sunderland Library. Right. During this time, um, the information that we've got here in 1889, uh, Stuart Reed was the first person to write a report. The document that we're looking at here is the report and classification of Blenheim Archives, and it spans two volumes. Oh. And um, I think what's particularly warming and exciting for me reading the introduction in particular is that I can really relate to Reed's experience of finding the archives. At this point they're actually um, in the library and he writes in October 1890s when 
um, he first started the work in the October. He uh, writes, I found parchments, state papers, military reports, private letters, maps, plans, and a number of manuscripts, volumes, deposit in a haphazard <laughs> fashion in the presses of the Long Library in bundles large and small, and the utmost confusion prevailed among the papers. And this brings a great smile to my face because that reminds me very much of the state of the archives of parts of it that, that I took on. Um, many, shall, I, many shall, I, um, shall I pop the slide yeah, up of what it was like? Yeah. Let's see if we can get it to move. Oh, dear me. Okay, technology is wonderful when it works. There you go. <laughs> There we go. So this is a picture of the archives in January 2016. It used to be in the Undercroft, which is in the um, basements of, of the palace. And um, if you look around, you can see why I can identify with Reed's comments. He <laughs> writes, the whole collection has more or less suffered from neglect and the ravages of mildew of mice are too, only too perceivable. Though I'm happy to be able to add that in the majority of cases, the most important papers in the historical sense of the term, are still practically unharmed. <laughs> so what we can see here is the boxes that are in um, a buff colour to date are largely still un uncatalogued because there's a staggering volume of them. This is less than a quarter of the material that we had at, at, this, at this point. Right. And... Um, I, th I think the concern with those boxes that we see that are buff coloured is when you open them, not only are they very old, they've been untouched for so many years, oh but also they have got rusty brass paper clips mm. uh, on some of the documents and um, rusty staples, which are mm. going, to, going to cause a problem. So what we'll do is we'll move them out of there, which we'll we'll discuss in a minute but in terms of um the progression for the archives as a location this is where we were at in 2016 and in 2017 we moved uh, i think we've got a picture there okay um so whereas in the basement, the conditions were becoming increasingly undesirable, um, we were beginning to get patches of, of, of mould um, mm. and damp that we had to keep a constant eye on. I'm now spoilt with three rooms of storage area. And um, last summer, uh, 2019 summer, sorry, uh, I gained a separate office, which allows easier access for visitors. So now we have got rolling racks they are metal as opposed to wood which means that the items are much better protect protected um, and in a, an environment where the conditions are more stable this is above above ground so we don't have the same problem of damp and, and humidity that we had previously. Alexa can I just stop you there so um, you, you mentioned that you've now got an office that you can work from separate from mm -hmm. this um, because it always used to strike me whenever I came down um, to, to look in the archives, that I would have to wear five, six layers of clothing um, because, of course, you now have the wherewithal to, to... What temperature do you have to keep things at? Well, we need to keep it at um, an average of about 17 to 18 all year round. And we don't need it. It can't go lower than 13 or higher than 22, which seems quite a good range. But mm -hmm. if you think of the fact that we've got an, we're in an old building and um, there are lots of windows, it's a matter of blocking the light, making sure there's sufficient airflow, but windows being closed and making sure that it doesn't get too hot hot we do have to have heating as well because otherwise the walls are so thick um then that it's going to get far too cold for the material so it's it's balancing a little bit of radiator but but not too much 
Yeah. Yes, it used to be very cold in the undercroft. We, we, we'd have to um, wear lots of jumpers. And then when we were in this, in this room here, it was, it was equally, equally cold. The condition of coming to research was bringing extra jumper, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it certainly was. It certainly was. Um, so, sorry about that. Um, one of the other things that struck me about the, well, sorry, when you were moving from the undercroft to where you are now, yeah. um, what, I mean, what did it physically entail? Because it was a huge job, wasn't it? Oh, um, unbelievably so. So it was a matter of um, taking items from the uh, basement, the undercroft of the palace, across the courtyard into the new uh, into the new area. And it was a matter of making sure that items were wrapped so that they wouldn't get damaged. Uh, we did this in February. So um, fortunately, there wasn't a downpour of rain or snow, but it was very cold. And um, Oxfordshire weather, like the rest of the UK, isn't entirely favourable when you're trying to move you know, very, very old documents. Um, and it was transporting them across as safely and efficiently as possible to keep everything in the order that they they were previously right. whereas in the library you'll find items in alphabetical or category order where archives differ is you will keep them in the order in which you receive the material so it oh, actually right. okay. really mattered if the wrong collection was brought at the wrong time that um so it, it was a, it was a military operation and i was very well right. supported to to get it all done so that, that's interesting because i'd always stupidly assumed that things were in chronological order so it, it, in terms of um date of origin mm. um, but in fact it's the date they received into the archive yeah. oh, that's interesting wow um, which which is why it is all the more important to keep on top of knowing what you actually have yeah um because it's it's not easy, as as easy as going through the alphabet or going through a particular no situation. no of course not so my my let me ask you another question so mm -hmm. we've we've looked at the um archives as they were mm -hmm. uh, we've got a photograph here of the archives as they are now yeah. um and then the next image um, tell, tell me what's on here. Yeah, so where it says old um, and new, what we're looking at is how things were stored and how things are stored now. Now, on the one hand, on the old um, side, there's a story behind these boxes and these beautiful Victorian boxes. They look ever so pretty. And the, the, the scrolling of the writing. And they were actually um, put together by Stuart Reed the gentleman who did the classification and the initial plan when he was sorting through all of the papers was to have everything bound in volumes right. but he wasn't experienced he didn't really know what to do and the Duke wanted advice so they called in experts from the Bodleian and Oxford University recommended that they shouldn't have all of the papers bound because it was vastly vastly expensive mm -hmm. but also some of the papers had been folded over and if you kind of there, there were two indelible fold marks and there were items were fragile and it was actually going to cause more damage to have them all flattened out and, and mm. bound so instead it was just they decided to purchase bespoke cabinets and boxes which we've got on the old on the left hand side mm -hmm. and they were made by a gentleman in Banbury and uh, Stuart Reid claims that he had designed them himself. And if you look look here, these where it's where it's saying H one, for example, rolls yeah. and parchments of Sunderland papers. Yeah. That's how he would organise them. And at the time, it was. Uh, a vast improvement from being stuffed in parcels in the corner of the library but of course when I received them so many years later you can see the problem with the the boxes if you're looking at the top there's sort of white um and speckle that's evidence yeah. of water damage and damp over time oh, gosh. And so we moved them over to the admittedly less attractive but yes. <laughs> boxes on the right hand side, um, which are made of acid 
free uh, cardboard and paper. They're fire resistant and oh, uh, water retardant. So they've got special properties by which you put the material into these boxes and it's giving them the greatest chance of surviving longer without damage from the outside, but also the materials themselves not releasing chemicals that are going mm -hmm. to destroy the papers in, inside them. And when I joined the department, I consulted the Bodleian and Oxford University staff myself, and they were suggesting these boxes. Mm -hmm. So it's a lovely story that's coming full circle from you inherit um, archives that aren't in perhaps the most desirable conditions as you would hope for, have the enthusiasm and the backing to be able to move forward and do something with it. And um, good old Bodleian and Oxford University have stepped in and, and helped us along the way in uh, uh, hundred years differences. <laughs> so just to go back, so you, you yes. mentioned that they're fire, well, are they flame retardant or, I mean, if I, <laughs> if, if I came along with a naked flame and placed it next to that, that little folder there, what would happen? Well, I, 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 I would ask you politely to leave the room very quickly. Um, yeah, so it's it's not going to burn as quickly as as it, right. as, it, as, okay. a, as a standard um, folder that you would buy in in a station in a stationery shop. Okay. Um, so it has a, a, an added layer of, of protection. But ultimately, if you held it close enough for long enough, then it it, it right. would. Excellent. Well, not excellent. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to stop there for a moment because we've had a, we've had a couple of questions and I I, we're going to save most of the queue with questions at the end. Uh -huh. um, I have one here um, from Dom and it says, what is the thing you are least willing to tell me is in the archive? So, Dom, I think you'll need to elaborate a little bit on that. Or, Alexa, do you, do you understand? I can I, I can't answer that because I'm quite happy to be honest about what we have but there's one item that it, if it ever went missing I'd run quickly um because <laughs> because um one of the oldest items that we have in the archives is uh, called an incunabula which are um examples of first printed books before 1501 mm -hmm. and there's a fantastic interesting second edition of Virgil's Aeneid which is dated in 1470 wow. so that's something that I know you know is there but it ever disappears as a classicist that's my my background prior to to Blenheim then that might like to look pretty on my bookcase rather than in the safety of the archives. Can I just say that Dom has now piped up and said the Aeneid wow with several exclamation marks. <laughs> so, there's um, another question, and I know it's something we were going to cover. Mm. Uh, and we, we were going to talk about who can access the archives. Now, yeah. I've got a question here from Duncan Graham, and he says, I work as a guide at Blenheim, and having a degree in history, and having studied the history of the first Duke of Marlborough and the family and estate, I would love to study some of the books in the Long Library about the life of the Duke of Marlborough written in the 18th and 19th century. Would that be possible? Um, that, that sounds a fantastic project and I'd love to be involved in it. Um, Unfortunately, the care of the library books doesn't fall under my actual remit. You would need to speak to the keeper of the collections uh, and the palace. Now, because the library books are uh, largely his graces and um, by the estate, it may not be possible to consult those documents. That being said, in the research that I've done over the years, going back to our, our friend Stuart Reid, um, in 1914, he wrote a book on the first Duke and Duchess, um, drawing information that he had 
um, the first access to to the Blenheim archives. That's something that has been scanned and reprinted, and you can get that on Amazon. And the other great uh, resource for material is if you go to a website called Internet Archives, they have all sorts of out of print material that people have diligently scanned over the years, and that's available free. The other situation that we've got with the first Duke and Duchess's papers is a lot of them are no longer um, residing with us at Blenheim. They are actually uh, were given as a gift to the nation in lieu of death duties when the 10th Duke died and they went up to the British Library in the 1970, uh, late 1970s. So they've got a fantastic collection of the first Duke's papers. So if you're interested in doing first hand research that's that's where I would recommend um, sorry I'm not sure whether that really answered the question well, no I, I think it answered it beautifully and I'm, I'm sure um, I'm sure we'll be told if not <laughs> just going back a step then Alexa so who can access our archives so under ordinary circumstances, um, the archives aren't open to members of the public. So if you buy a ticket to come to Blenheim, that doesn't include the archives. Um, we, uh, you, you may be able to come and view material by appointment if you have contacted um, in advance with a specific academic research interest um, or for example, you were writing a thesis or you were writing a paper for a local history group, that, that sort of thing. But um, if you were interested in a member of your family working at the estate, you wouldn't be able to consult the material for that. That would be something that I would carry out on, on your behalf. The problem, of course, at the moment with COVID-19 is the archives are, are completely closed and there's not access to any researchers, I'm afraid. Yeah, but hope, hopefully next year. Yes. Yeah. Looking, looking, looking forward. Yes. Uh, always looking forward. Re always research looking. interests, but it's not open to members of the public with their yeah. Palace and Garden tickets. So, Alexa, what? Um, oh, how many items do you think there are? The ballpark figure. How many items? Wow. Have you got? Okay, so this is the most obvious question to ask. Um, I can tell you that there are over 10,000 items that are catalogued that I know that we have some, somewhere within the three rooms that we've got. But some of those catalogue entries will be um, an entire box worth. So they will be done at what we would call collection level. So we'd mm -hmm. have the name of a whole box. Within that box, there could be anything between 10 and 50 papers. Right. So Gosh. I can tell you that I have three rooms, um, well over 10,000 items, but um, I so I, in excess. I couldn't hazard a guess, yes. Okay, so Alexa, what's your favourite? Right, well, I'll have a... <laughs> and this is completely oh, unrehearsed. Okay. Completely unrehearsed. <laughs> so um, what I'd like to share with you today are some um, particularly attractive items that we've got. And the first one is a very beautiful and ornate book here, which was the addresses to um, the Duchess of Marlborough, the seventh Duchess, for her time when she was in, in Ireland. And she, she didn't really expect to be in Ireland, did she, Alexa? No, she didn't. It, was, it wasn't the original plan, was it? No, no it was, um, again, um, just to provide a little bit of background for, for people that are listening in. Um, so the seventh Duke and Duchess of Marlborough were Winston Churchill's grandparents. Mm -hmm. uh, they had 11 children, five boys, six girls. Of the five boys, two of them survived, and the oldest one, um, it was a bit of a lad, um, and he had an affair with a married woman called Edith Aylesford, yeah. and he was preparing to divorce his wife in order to, to take up with Edith. And um, Edith's husband wasn't terribly happy about this, and neither was um, his brother Randolph, Churchill's father. So in order to try and stop 
a family scandal. He went on to create a family scandal. And what he did, he came across some letters, um, some correspondence between the Prince of Wales, who later became Edward VII, and Edith, and he threatened to make these public. So mm. he threatened the Prince of Wales, which was a huge mistake. Yes. Um, <laughs> not wise. <laughs> definitely not wise. Um, and so they they found themselves in a position where they weren't received in any respectable household. And so um, the seventh Duke was encouraged to go to Ireland as Viceroy and Randolph um, ended up there as his unpaid secretary. Winston spent you know, a couple of years out there when he was a little boy. So that, that just, just creates a perspective for that. But yes. why, why did they present the Duchess with the, this beautiful, beautiful book? So the Duchess was remarkable. Despite everything that was happening within the family, she was very pious herself and um, very committed to charitable causes. And whilst she was in Ireland, she dedicated herself and spent a, a lot of her time visiting and supporting schools, especially charity schools for, for poor girls. And she went to hospitals and orphanages and was aware of variety of problems that were happening in Ireland at the time and really wanted to make a difference and do something about it and one of the things that she became aware of was that there was a decline in the Irish manufacturing in industry and she wanted Irish materials to be she promoted Irish materials amongst her circles to encourage the ladies of the days to buy silk and Irish lace and that sort of thing to keep keep people people going and the 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 reason why she received this beautiful volume was in response to the potato famine and the failed potato crop in 1879 uh, the duchess wrote to the times and and created this idea of a famine fund um, where she was encouraging all wealthy people in Ireland and in the UK and requested support, especially for the poor people in Ireland who would be in Western Ireland who were most affected. Yeah. So the this fund was called the Irish Duchess Relief Fund and the money was used to buy seed potato and food and fuel and clothing for for impoverished people and children in particular and the schools were given grants to provide meals of bread and potatoes and clothing as required. So this book was a collection of um, addresses that had been created by the children and by local church groups illustrating their appreciation of the work that that she had done and you can see these gorgeous gorgeous colors and they're so so rich and so beautiful and, and the people were just so grateful because somebody was coming in and helping them at a time where they they didn't have the same sort of charity fundraising schemes that we do today and certainly not on such a scale but just to put it into context um the duchess raised 130,000 pounds at the time which today's money is 15.7 million pounds wow. uh it's a staggering amount of money that really made a huge amount of of difference to so many individuals and families that wouldn't have had um, uh, the the opportunity mm. to rebuild their lives without it. It's quite yeah. something, isn't it? My goodness. Yeah. yeah. It and reminds it, me a bit of Captain Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just to go on, Alexis, so <laughs> tell me what this next slide is. So, as I said, her hard work didn't go unnoticed. And this is actually a letter of personal thanks and commendation from Queen Victoria to the Duchess and she writes from Windsor Castle in April the 19th 1880 and it reads Dear Duchess I as everyone is am filled with admiration of the indefatigable zeal and de devotion with which you have successfully laboured to relieve the distress in Ireland 
I am therefore anxious to mark my sense of your services at this moment when, alas, they will so soon be lost to Ireland and wish to confer on you the third class of the Victoria and Albert order. Mm -hmm. I will wait till you come over to invest you with it. Believe me always, yours affectionately, Victoria R.I. And in this photograph here, we've got Duchess Frances very proudly reading the letter that we've just we've just heard. But if you look very closely around her neck, she's actually wearing the third class Victoria and Albert order. Um, and this was worn by the Queen on state occasions and was actually the first time it had been conferred on anyone outside the royal family. So it was a a huge, huge commendation from the Queen to 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 give the Duchess um, this beautiful item. Excellent. Right. So, Alexa, that's one of your favourite things. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what else are you particularly fond of? So I can't believe there's only one, well, one series of things in that whole collection. So what else are you going to share with us? So staying with the regal theme, I would like to move on to um, the accounts of Queen Anne, a account book that we've got here um, that covers the period of 1708 to 1711. And this was um, particularly exciting find for me. I wasn't aware that that we had it. I stumbled across it. Oh wow. Um, and a very exciting find because as you see the picture on the left hand side actually says the accounts for Queen Anne signed February the 1st 1710 to 11 which were the law. That's actually written in Sarah's handwriting which is as we can see, quite difficult to, mm. to read. But that was actually written on the back cover. The front cover, which is the same print, doesn't have anything written on it. And mm. I was looking through it and scrolled through and got to the final page, which is on the right-hand side, where right at the bottom, you can see Queen Anne's signature. Uh, and this... Um, this find, it reminds me of an, another of Reed's comments in his book. He says that when he was looking through a parcel that named no importance inside it, when he when he opened it up, when he was going through through the archives during the Eighth Duke's time, it had old letters and household oh, wow. accounts and inventories, which he didn't think were of greater importance. But he then also found the first military commission of John Churchill with Charles II's signature and a parchment appointing Sarah, the Duchess of Marlborough, as mistress of the robes to Queen Anne. Oh, wow. So it just goes to show you can stumble across yeah. things when, yeah, yeah. When, when you are least expecting it. And this is an illustration of how Sarah, the first Duchess, was a meticulous bookkeeper and mm -hmm. she insisted that every last penny was accounted for and this was quite revolutionary for for the time and it was the first real time the actual cost of running the court and country was being accurately recorded and she also okay. insisted that the queen personally signed off the expenditure um so Gosh. and um what can we see in here so this is this is very interesting. Um, the first one at the top that we've got um, is uh, an example of Sarah's payment. And she, this was when she was keeper of the, the privy purse and she mm -hmm. was paid every six months. So over the course of the year, she would be paid £2,000, which in today's <coughs> money is uh, around about £440,000. So that was that was an interesting insight to see it actually written down and you can Goodness work out me. how much she was paid and the frequency with which she, she received it. Second item down is uh, interesting because it shows a charitable side of the monarch and it says given to the mad Spaniard. <laughs> How extraordinary. Yeah 
Uh, who, who knows? And um, throughout the book, he, he receives a number of payments, actually, and um, to the value of around about £2,250 um, within about an 18-month period. But that's that's all we know. We know that he was mad. We know How frustrating. We know he received money, but I've yet to find a document that tells me who he was and why he got it. <laughs> And then there's a final one over on the right-hand side, Alexa. Um, I don't know if you can make it out. Yeah, um, so that says, um, given a jeweller on Thanksgiving Day, and that's the equivalent of £878. And that's actually referring to a Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral uh, in honour of the First Duke and the Oudenard. Victory. Ah, okay. So that in itself is quite an exciting thing. We find out that there's jewellery, we find out when it was bought, we find out how much um, it cost. But perhaps of greater significance is that Sarah and Queen Anne had a huge falling out at, at this point on this day because Sarah was forced to accompany Queen Anne in an open carriage and as groom of the stole she had laid out jewels for the Duchess for the Queen to wear but when she got into the carriage with Queen Anne she found out that the Queen wasn't wearing any of the jewels that she had laid out which meant that Sarah felt very undermined and uh, she was very concerned about court gossip um, that that she, the things that she had prepared hadn't been hadn't been worn. The argument escalated between the two to the extent that Sarah was actually overheard telling the Queen to be quiet, which is not a particularly um, mm -hmm. sensible sensible move by any stretch of the imagination. And Anne never actually forgives Sarah. Um, for that so to find in writing that there were yes, jewels yes. that were bought that were accounted for is is fits into the story that we knew about about the argument so whilst on the one hand I don't know why the mad Spaniard was paid I knew <laughs> that there was an argument over jewels because I'd heard about it but this is proof that that that, that incident had actually um that there were purchase of jewels behind it that you see, you should never throw anything away, should you? You, know, you yeah. should keep all your diaries, all your bills, exactly, etc. Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> always. Yeah. Um, so, shall we move on to your to another favourite item? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, tell me what you see here. So this is um, a map, a survey of the land of Woodstock and the immediate towns around it that was done in 1772. So that was during the fourth Duke's time by a gentleman called Thomas Pride. And uh, he was an estate surveyor based in Bloomsbury in London. And we do have a number of his plans of areas uh, surrounding Oxfordshire that he that the fourth duke had commissioned him to do unfortunately the other items that we have are not in the in as as sound a condition as this which is why I've chosen this one and if you look at the color it is mm. so vibrant and so clear and so distinct despite despite its its age and I think if we can look closely at the area around the palace. So here, this we've just honed closely in on um, what the map shows of Blenheim. And we learn from it that this was actually done post-Capability Brown. So after his, his work had, had been carried out and the changes had been made around around the estate so um, we can see the belt of trees around yep. the park around right the edge and double row of trees there and um, then we've got the Grand Avenue so we've got trees from the palace stretching from the palace all the way up to Ditchley Gate in the north and mm -hmm. Hensington Gate in the east yeah um, we can see the south lawn 
um, which was uh, that replaced Henry Wise's Grand Partier, which was built for the first Duke. And this is quite a controversial move by Brown um, because that had uh, Henry Wise during the first Duke's time had produced these formal gardens of box yew trees and holly hedges and they were symmetrical and there was a raised walkway and um, there were different colours of gravel and sand and this was all replaced with a large a large lawn so there have been some critics of um, Capability Brown for that decision but the flip side of it is there's also evidence that it wasn't in the greatest state of repair at the time when these changes were made. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing that we can see that is different to now is the Great Court. Because that was actually lawned um, and um, because... Capability Brown felt the original design of the cobbles and gravels um, was too formal, so laid laid grass throughout it, and it remained that that way until the ninth Duke decided to return it to the cobbles, as we have today in the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, and then, of course, as where we can see now, we've got we've got the lake and the changes with the cascades. Now, this map was produced um, three years before the cascades were finally finally finished. So. It is extra, as you say. It's it's so vivid in the detail, yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think we take it a, a little bit for granted that you know we can go up in an aeroplane and look down. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, he was doing it from ground level as yeah. well. It's it's just fun, absolutely it, fabulous. Yeah, it's an extraordinary feat and then just the level of detail. And we're just so incredibly fortunate that it's surviving yeah. today in, in the condition that it, that it is. And... Um, you know, I, 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 I like that. I like the story that it tells um, and that, that we can still see in, in great detail, but that's how it was at the time. They're oh, my favourite things. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I feel you should burst into song now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's not in the hills. <laughs> Alexa, we've had, um, well, th there are some more questions I'd quickly like to ask because okay. um, yeah. time is marching on, unfortunately. Yes. So you mentioned um, how you came into the job and yeah. you've mentioned the sorts of changes that you've seen. So mm -hmm. what, what have you got planned for the future? Because I can't help but think that it's not going to just stay as it is for, for the time being. No, it's, it's, it's all changed. And that's kind of the ironic thing. You're looking at very old material um but it's how to keep it alive so how mm -hmm. how we preserve it and um my role is kind of there's almost threefold at the one hand my responsibility is to protect the family and the palace's integrity um and to preserve the material but also mm -hmm. to make it available at to researchers at appropriate times to support keeping keeping history alive mm. and the ways that we can balance the need to access the material for research pu uh, purposes is to move towards digitization so that we're not bringing out the same piece of paper over and over and, and, and risk damage and, and break to it so that's one area that we're we're developing and we want right. to bring bring the information that we've got so safely guarded in these boxes to um, just sort of bring it to life to make make the visitors excited when they can come round. Whilst they can't touch certain letters, they can actually see them. They can um, have have an ex a close experience, close virtual experience while they're on site at the same time as preserving the the originals and um i work closely with oxford university in providing formal internships to give students opportunities to have time working in 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 an archive in, environment and um That's then nice. just just generally making material 
more available at appropriate times with the caveat that sometimes things can't be accessed because they're just too fragile <laughs> um, and it's it's not worth the the risk of material to to explore more as to what it is um, Alexa so how frequently do you add or, or sorry again over the past five or six years um do the archives continue to grow? Um, I mean, not just because time's passing and so, you know, things yeah. get added in that way, but um, have things come into the collection? You know, but what happens? Or do you just say, no, I haven't got enough room now, enough? I ask for more space. <laughs> um, so um, I, I do receive material on a regular basis of, of various sizes. Um, often, the, I mean, there have been instances when um, areas of the palace are uh, being tidied or reorganised, then certain things are found and they come to right. me or they are moved from parts of the palace to the conditions which um, are more suited for the material in the archives. Um, we accept donations of Blenheim-related and Spencer Churchill family-related items. Do you ever turn and things away, Alexa? Sorry. So if I were to come to you and say, look, I have this lovely teacup that has Blenheim on it. <laughs> Please have it for your archive. What would be your response? I would say thank you very much for considering us. Um, I don't tend to take artefacts as such. It is predominantly paper, paper based, and I don't tend to take items which are available elsewhere. So, for example, newspapers can be um, sought from many different places, and and this is this is a common collection policy that archives tend to have is that they won't take duplicate uh, oh, material and I'm also very cautious about taking material that needs um, special equipment uh, to read it so when we're looking at things like floppy disks and oh, CDs um, they, they incur a large cost to, to reformat so the material that I've got to date we're going through the process of taking it off the CD off the floppy disk onto yeah. uh onto into a digital format that is going to survive longer so i'd be reluctant to take the, those sort of things in the future on that note um you know you've been looking you've shown us um for example queen anne's account book mm. now in 50 100 years time what is there going to be for people to look at you know because we'll delete our emails we don't print things off in the same way you know, can you can you see a future? Um, well, where... I mean, this is, this is a huge responsibility that I have, and we 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 all have collectively. It's um, capturing the modern archives, what mm. is happening today, and that's one of the projects we're working on the moment. To, at the moment, to work out how we can how we can preserve those emails, how we can keep things electronically, how some things can be printed off, but not everything and sorting through sorting through it. So as you said before, never throw anything out. <laughs> we can't keep everything in the paper format, but there are alternative ways to keep it. And that's an avenue that um, we're, we're very keen on exploring. Um, yeah. as we but, I, but I think my worry is that there just won't be, you know, for example, you and I communicate by email mm. you know, so yeah. in years to come that email won't exist yeah um you know so all these lovely little tidbits about mad spaniards and you know jewels and things just won't be there yeah and that's yeah. that saddens me it is, it, is, it is sad and it's something that um, the whole profession is a, a problem that we're all facing yeah. and trying to grapple with how to how to keep things but it's it's sort of moving with the times about yeah. how people access things. So whilst it, the, the Queen Anne book, of course, it's beautiful. It's one of my favourite favorite mm -hmm. items. If in 300 years time, we have worked out a way to capture payments today of, for example, the charity work that the palace supports in the local community, you wouldn't be able to come in, not, not so many people would be able to come in and see that, but if you've caught it electronically, if you've caught it in the way that is um, more universally accessible, there is benefit 
in that people can understand more and see what has happened in a way that you're restricted as to how many people can actually see mm-hmm. Queen Anne's account book. So yeah. it swings and roundabouts. There are there are good and good and yeah. bad things. Always, always. <laughs> led to another question. Yeah. Um, what what are you asked most frequently? Because I know that you know your your inbox is is often full of um, requests from people. What what do they ask you? What's the most common thing you get asked? I think the most common thing people ask me are uh, family history research right. questions. Um, did my grandmother work here, or I think my grandmother worked here? Do you have records? Do you have a photograph? And um, they're actually the hardest questions to answer because we don't have um, HR records for the first Duchess's time in the same way that we have now. 300 years time, we can tell you that I worked here, that you worked here and that sort of thing. We don't have those. And the way that it would, the information that we've got, we've got very thick um, old ledgers and their account and account books mm-hmm. and what would happen would be a lump sum of money would be given so you'd have an entry for the butler the butler mm-hmm. would get a certain amount but then the butler would have his own account books mm-hmm. detailing who he was paying and how much and unfortunately we don't have that mm-hmm. so if for example you were doing a special project or doing a bit of overtime you might appear in the ledger in the overall account book but it wouldn't give you an indication that that person continuously worked through the palace. So I'm, I'm restricted, unfortunately, um, on what evidence I, I can provide to families to show that, that, their, that their ancestors worked with us. Right, okay. Um, so, oops, sorry. Um, and I, I always remember there being a thing about, did my granny work there and, um, the number of head gardeners we've had is legendary, I believe. It is it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So I, I haven't um, quite worked out whether they didn't stay very long or whether there were teams of them. But yes, that <laughs> yeah. um, there, there are a lot. <laughs> and Alexa, one more question. Mm. Is there anything that you would like that you're aware of that used to be in the collection? Um, you know, going back as far as the first Duke, that you would really love to see back. Because um, I know that there was, you know, we, we have talked about um, reuniting the collection. Is, is there any particular item that you would see back if you could? Um, wow, I think I would probably go for the first Duke and Duchess's letters um, that they, their personal letters when they wrote when they were apart, particularly during the time that Sarah was uh, here in the UK watching the build of the mm. palace and um, His Grace was uh, overseas during military campaigns. That would be, that would be my wish list. Right. Well, I think um, I, on that note, uh, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have an insight into the archives, into the work you do, um, and into how you look after you know this amazing collection. Um, you know, it's a fantastic job that you do. Yes, I'm, I'm so, very happy. Well, I hope you enjoyed your visit to our archive. If you did, do share it with your friends and subscribe to this series so that you receive a reminder of when the next episode is available. Next week at the same time, I'm going to be chatting to our wonderful clockman, John Richards. John has looked after all the clocks at Blenheim Palace for over 50 years. It was a job that he came across almost by chance and after having been locked in a room by the palace administrator with only a clock for company. We'll be broadcasting this episode just before the clocks go forward. So as you're busy changing your clocks, spare a thought for John and the huge job he has before him. I do hope you'll join us.